Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to the writer John Mualam from the New York Times Magazine. His latest book of essays is called Serious Face, and it explains, among other things, uh, why you might not want to text your friend a picture of a Spanish bullfighter that you saw somewhere and tell them that this person looks exactly like them. Also, how poetry can save your life if you are injured in rural Alaska. Plus, we're going to meet the chef and bar owner, Jenny Wynn, behind the world's first sports bar that plays only women's sports on the televisions. It's called the Sports Bra, which is an amazing name. And also happens to be right here in Portland, Oregon. Then we're going to hear some music from friend of the show, the one, the only, Laura Veers. So that is the plan. We have an amazing show in store this week. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going very well. It's nice to see you. You are somewhere in America at a writing event, right? That's right. I'm at a writer's camp in Vermont. Are you feeling ready for this week's station location identification examination? I really hope it's a city in Vermont. It is not. I'm going to give you that one hint. Ah, Okay. Okay. This, of course, is the part of the show where I quiz Elena on a station in America where Livewire is on the radio. You try to guess where I'm talking about. So this place is known as the toilet paper capital of the world. (laughs) The company that would eventually become Quilted Northern invented the first toilet paper here that would come without the risk of splinters. (laughs) So the takeaway from this is early production methods of toilet paper sometimes left wood splinters in the rolls. Okay, well, Northern... So it's somewhere in the north, and then toilet paper, there's got to be a lot of trees around, so... Let me give you another clue. I I like how you're thinking, but this might help, too. The French explorer, Jean Nicole, originally named this spot, and apologies for my French, La Baie des Ponts, or the Bay of Stinking Waters, because of the smell of the algae, but they (gasps) later renamed it in favor of the color of the algae. Is it Green Bay, Wisconsin? It is exactly Green Bay, Wisconsin, (laughs) where we're on the radio on WHID Radio. (laughs) I'm really glad they changed the name. 
Yeah, yeah, good good rebranding there. I have been to Green Bay, and it is a wonderful place, and I'm glad it's not called the Bay of Stinking Waters anymore. All right. <laughs> Shout out to everyone listening in Green Bay. Uh, should we uh, get to the show, Elena? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, writer John Mualem. He has a face that's as dreary as a third-class funeral on a rainy day. <laughs> and, uh, and what I realized with that is this, this bullfighter, who's my exact twin, apparently, <laughs> was just renowned for his ugliness. Chef and women's sports advocate Jenny Wynn. Here we are, we're a space that is dedicated to showing women's sports, right? But there isn't any possible way that we're able to show 24-7 content. With music from Laura Veers and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all over the country, including in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We have a great show in store for y'all this week. Of course, uh, we asked the Livewire listeners a question for this week's show. That question was, describe your dream business. This is because one of our guests, Jenny Wynn, kind of went out and made her dream business, this place called the Sports Bra in Portland you're going to hear about. We're going to hear those listener responses coming up. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. Of course, this is our little reminder at the top of the show that there's some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? (laughs) Okay, kitty cat news from (laughs) Kentucky. It's been a week since one of us checked in on the kitty cat beat, so it was high time. (laughs) I have a hard time not making all my best news uh, feline related, but this one's pretty good. There's a woman in Ashland, Kentucky named Randy McGlone who recently got herself a new recliner. Tried it out for a couple of days, decided that it wasn't for her, called the company, and they took it back to their big Sandy Superstore warehouse. And she was like, ah, back to the drawing board. Wait a minute, where's my cat? Oh, no. <laughs> and she looked around, and her house isn't that big. And she uh, has a cat that she's very close to. She calls it sort of like uh, in the vein of an emotional support animal mm-hmm. named Inky. Inky already had used up one of Inky's nine lives by being in a fire when Inky was a kitten. So oh, Inky man. doesn't have any whiskers and has a really interesting fur pattern and um, a burned paws. So a real survivor cat and also a real emotional cat for Randy McGlone. So back at the warehouse at the Big Sandy Superstore, they unload this recliner and all they see is this little black lightning bolt that just shoots into the bowels of the warehouse. They call Randy and they're like, um, I think we have your cat. Huh. She goes she goes down there and she calls and calls and calls in this big warehouse and she can't find Inky. Mm-hmm. And she goes back again and tries and tries to find Inky. She goes back again. And this is a warehouse. So doors are opening and closing. Things are going in and out. There are plenty of recliners to hide in. Inky can't navigate the doorways because Inky doesn't have whiskers, which we know are like an important sensory part of the cat's deal. That's right. But three weeks later, Randy thought her cat was gone. They finally managed to trap Inky at the superstore. They called her. She came over. And now... The cat is reunited. And this woman has decided to just buy futons going forward. Just something with less... Pillows on the floor. Yeah. Nothing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a tatami room. Something where the cat cannot get wedged in a hidden space. 
if they want to hide certain kinds of cats, you really can never find them. They're so flexible and like good luck. Speaking of hidden animals, can I just tell you about the best thing that I saw this week or heard about? I didn't actually see it, but I heard about a chinchilla named Mr. Bean who was hiding in the bag of somebody that I was flying with. I was flying home from Chicago recently, and we had had no end of like weather delays and hassle, and everyone on the flight kind of bonded because we had you know, been through so much tr- planes, trainsing, and automobilesing. <laughs> right. And the person next to me, she mentioned that she was, she goes, I'm uh, sneaking an animal on this flight. I go, what? She goes, yeah, I have a chinchilla named Mr. Bean in the bag. She showed me some pictures of him on her phone, and she was like, He's my son. He's my everything. I was like, where do you, where do you get a chinchilla in Mr. Bean? She goes, well, I'm a teacher in Chicago, and he was the class chinchilla. Oh. She went through security, like surreptitiously? Uh, Mr. We were way past security. We were at the <gasps> gate. Oh, my gosh. And Mr. Bean had made it through security and was ready to take this flight from Chicago to Portland. And the idea that this teacher had basically taken Mr. Bean home because... You know, that happens with those classroom pets where it's kind of like, you know, there are no takers. I think he was like eight or nine when she took him home. So it was not a young chinchilla. And they have now bonded so well and to such a degree that they're just like little ride or die for each other. So, oh my gosh. And, and Mr. Mr. Bean. Bean, Mr. Bean made it to Portland <laughs> safe and sound. So I'm not advocating for sneaking pets onto flights, but I'm just saying. It was pretty memorable and cool for me as an. Plus, I didn't know how cute chinchillas are. I think of a chinchilla as being sort of hamster-like. They got these big old cute ears. They got big very eyes. kind of yeah, their eyes, big giant eyes, are like a Disney character or something. Did you see that jet blue photo of a, a flight attendant just carrying a gigantic cat up and down the aisles, going, "Is this your cat? Is this your cat?" <laughs> <laughs> that would happen if I tried to sneak my cat Bubbles onto a flight. She would, <laughs> she would escape within moments and be giving Inky a run for their money in terms of using up lives. So, Inky the cat only being on life number seven, and Mr. Bean the chinchilla flying cross country—that's <laughs> the best news that we've heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest on over to the show. Uh, He is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, and he was the person behind the surprisingly listenable podcast, The Walking Podcast, wherein he would just record himself walking around Bainbridge Island in Washington, where he lives, What we want to talk to him about, though, is his exceptional new book of essays. It's titled Serious Face. It covers everything from monk seals to the former skydiving entrepreneur who's been building his dream city in the desert of California, calling it the center of the world. John Wallam joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater. Let's take a listen to that conversation. Hello, John. Hi. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, this book, Serious Face, is just such an absolutely wonderful read. It's a collection of essays on a variety of different topics and, and things that you've reported on in your life over the years. Uh, one of the questions that you pose in the book is, why are we not better than we are? 
you said that's sort of a question that you've been trying to answer in one way or another throughout your career. What do you exactly mean by that question? Why are we not better than we are? What are you trying to explore? Yeah, well, first I'll say, so I, I kind of borrowed, well, I, I didn't borrow it. I stole that line from a, <laughs> from a poem by a poet named Eric Trethway, which I'd read um, like 25 years ago and just kind of still is rattling around my head. And yeah, I think that's when I had to sit down and think about, you know, what tied a lot of these pieces together. It did seem like... Um, that was a question they were all driving at in one way or another. Not necessarily like in a moral sense, like why are we not, you know, perfect angels all the time, but just even like as functional machinery, like why is it that I was supposed to check that my water heater wasn't leaking before I left the house this morning and I didn't do it, you know, and why... Did that really happen to that you really, That's a true story. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just think that we're, in some ways, it's like when you, when you really can step back, you see, like a lot of us are kind of bumbling around and, and more inept than I think we generally realize. And that, we, But the problem is, is like we can imagine better, you know, better ways of doing things. We can imagine sort of the perfect way to do everything. And so a lot of the stories in the book are, are about this kind of breakdown between theory and practice when people are really trying to accomplish something great and kind of just can't, just can't get there. One of the early essays in the book involves you and some buddies heading out to Alaska for a kayaking trip and things um, did not sort of play out the way you were expecting. What happened? Yeah, we were kayaking in Glacier Bay, which is a really remote part of Alaska, and uh, had been rained in one day. Uh, weren't able to, to get in the boats that day because the water was too rough, so we decided to just kind of hike around after the rain had died down. And a very large tree uh, fell over uh, and landed on my friend and knocked him into a river. Um, that's the short version of the story. But I mean, uh, <laughs> the, what makes it so uh, compelling is, first of all, your friend was, it turns out, injured very sort of gravely. And you're also in the absolute middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And also, like, no offense, but one of your friends was sort of an outdoor guide, but the other two... Exactly. My, my friend, whose name is also John, was the one who was injured, and he was the one who had all the experience and, and know-how. Um, you know, we were his guests. I mean, I should say, he's, he's okay. We got, we got him out. Yeah. And the, the Coast Guard uh, came through a kind of freak series of, of coincidences. We were able to get word to the Coast Guard. But yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of this, of this question is like, you know, somehow everything worked out, but it was not because we were you know, perfectly capable, uh, you know, competent people. It was, it was a lot of luck. Um, it could have easily gone different ways, and it was just sort of like repeatedly kind of just like trying to not let the current emergency, uh, you know, take us all under and then getting to the next emergency. You turned, as is so often the case in emergencies, to poetry? Yeah. Yes. First aid kit was poetry. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you really want me in a crisis because, yeah. Um, yeah, there was there was a moment in this in this whole adventure where where my one friend had had gone back to our campsite to try to get a hold of this radio and and reach some help, and I and was left alone with my friend my friend John who was just laying on the forest floor completely immobilized. And, you know, I had this sense, like probably mostly from movies, you know, you're supposed to talk to the person who's kind of going in and out of consciousness and just kind of try to pull them back. But, you know, I didn't have a script for that, right? Like yeah. you actually need to say things. And, and I initially started kind of like bumbling around. And I, at one point I apologized because I, th I thought I'd overstayed my welcome with his family at Christmas one year. I was sort of like <laughs> cleansing myself of my, you know, and I realized, oh, this is messed up. Like I don't want him to think I think he's dying, right? So... Uh, and that's also not how that's supposed to work. It's the person who's dying who's supposed to get some stuff off their right. chest, not the other person yeah. who's basically fine. You know, that's a really, that's a really good point. 
Um, I'm going to add that to the list of things that did not go right uh, that day. Um, but yeah, so um, I had these uh, professors in college who had insisted and, and required us to, to uh, memorize poems. And uh, so yeah, so I, the first one I reached for was The Shampoo by Elizabeth Bishop, which is a, a love poem she wrote for another woman about washing her hair. Uh -huh. And so there I was uh, reciting that to John. Um, and you know, we went, I went through some more hits, some Robert Frost, some Auden, and uh, I, I didn't realize at the, at the time, I would not have been able to tell you it was that long. I thought it was maybe a matter of minutes. It turns out for an hour and a half, John and I were there uh, before anyone came back to, uh, to help us, and uh, I think I was doing poetry most of that time. And, and he told you later that, that that actually was really great for him in that moment. It was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was another really surprising thing about being able to talk this out all this time later, was I, I had this image of myself as, um, you know, pretty helpless, and, um, and yeah, and, and I think John was really grateful for it. He, he told me that if he had to almost die on, a, on the floor of a forest, he'd love for me to be there next time, too, so, yeah. This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening to a conversation with the writer John Mualam about his latest collection of essays, Serious Face. We've got to take a quick break, but when we get back, John is going to read one of those essays about his face and its resemblance to a, a certain Spanish bullfighter, which John didn't take as a huge compliment. Don't go anywhere. More Livewire in a moment. Hey, welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to John Mualam. His uh, new book of essays is Serious Face. Um, the essay that you've written about your face and the face of a, um, a famous Spanish bullfighter was actually in the New York Times Magazine. I'm sure a lot of people here got a chance to read it. It's a really incredible piece of writing, and I was wondering, could you maybe read a little bit from uh, that particular essay in the book? Sure, yeah. Now, friends of yours started sending you <laughs> photographs of this particular bullfighter that they would see photos of in Spain. And what was his name? His name was Manolete, um, although I didn't know that at the time. It was, it was two friends who had been at a restaurant and seen this photograph on the wall and sent it to me immediately because um, the guy looked just like me. Um, <laughs> they were really freaked out by it, as, I, as was I. I saw it too. You don't often normally see this about yourself, but I couldn't deny it. He looked exactly like me. Mm. Um, and then so you, you wrote about it, and um, maybe we could hear some of that. Sure. Yeah, well, so I'll just say that um, my face is very crooked for the listening public at home. My, my jaw is kind of going in, in one way, my nose in the other. Uh, I say in, in the piece, it's so it's, I'm never kind of really looking straight at you, no matter which, which way I tilt my head. I think it's beguiling for the well, record. Well, thank you. This is all just a trick to get people to tell me I'm handsome. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is a part of the piece where I stop talking about um, the bullfighter's face and start talking about my face instead. No one appreciates my face with more uncontrollable gusto than dentists, though. More than once, I've endured one calling in a colleague from the other room to come have a look. They peer at my x-rays with giddy concentration, as though pressing open a fresh book of Sudoku, and sometimes ask me to get out of the chair and stand against the wall so they can get a few shots with a regular camera, too. I was in my mid-30s before I realized that these demoralizing portrait sessions weren't a standard part of a dental exam. Every time I see a new dentist, it's the same. 
They get like archaeologists before a dig, eager to know what sort of ruined structure is hidden under there, <laughs> imagining all the physical dysfunction and pain that I must be living with, and the many diagnostic tools and specialists that could be gathered behind the project of setting it all right. They aren't wrong. My jaw is so misshapen that I can feel it wriggle out of joint whenever I open wide enough for a hamburger or a yawn and then bonk back into place. And the gums on the left side of my mouth are wearing away at a distressing rate since those teeth apparently clamp together long before the ones on the other side can connect and therefore do most of the chewing. But my only serious complaint has been the headaches, a small genus of pains that have racked me periodically since childhood. There's a particular kind of dull headache that sprouts under and above my eyes like mold. There's one that presses and holds its weight against my face from inside, like a tantruming toddler squatting against her bedroom door to keep the world out. There's the throbbing one that hangs around diffusely for hours and only produces pain when I focus on it, like a pang of guilt. Maybe none of this makes sense. These headaches molder at the periphery of language in a nonsensical cloud of synesthesia and memories, purple pain, newsprint-colored pain, pain that has the turgid heft of Greek yogurt or smells like the inside of an umbrella, pain that funnels me back to one gloomy Sunday afternoon from my childhood, splayed on the carpet, watching Steve Martin in The Jerk on Channel 11. Does anyone truly comprehend the pressures roiling inside their own head? As far as I understand it, the source of my headaches is probably my sinuses, which over time were narrowed and crushed like a plastic straw as the bones of my jaw and nose grew into them out of alignment. But I can't say for sure. At a couple of different points in my life, I've gotten motivated to better diagnose and even fix these problems, shuttling around for exploratory scans and consultations. Doctors have proposed plastic surgery to straighten out my nose, or surgically breaking my jaw and resetting it. After walking me through the complete cartography of the human face in an anatomy textbook, one postulated that perhaps my flattened sinuses could be bored open wider with lasers. I actually didn't even know that's a real thing. When he said it to me, I didn't know until the other day that that's a real thing. Really? I yeah. I thought he was just, I, I was like, well, what's with this guy? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> But to be honest, I've never earnestly considered pursuing any of these doctors' recommendations, just nodded along inertly with my misshapen face as they spoke. Somehow, every intervention has felt so pointlessly ambitious, so laborious, so dramatic. For better or worse, these problems feel normal to me. And the truth is, I started to identify so deeply with the peculiarities of my face that the idea of correcting those imperfections eventually became unthinkable. Looking in the mirror, I try to imagine every part of me pointing flawlessly forward and wonder, who would I be then? When I was younger, I worried I was ugly, but by the time I turned 30, there was even a measure of perverse vanity involved. <laughs> I'd come to appreciate my face so much that I was willing to live with the pain of having it attached to my head. <laughs> and that's why, reading the first Manolete biography on my kitchen floor the night it arrived, it didn't upset me to learn how allegedly grotesque my doppelganger was, and how unrepentantly and universally this face we shared was ridiculed. I was able to brush it off, and even wrest some wry amusement from the discovery. And that felt good, good to feel unthreatened, good to recognize that a kind of genuine acceptance and equanimity had apparently been growing inside me from an odd angle all those years. In short, that night, I felt myself freely loving who I am and was proud but then I read the rest of the Manolete biography. <laughs> it's John Mualem here on Livewire. The, the story of, of, of Manoletti and, and his life is fascinating, as detailed in this book. Also, 
you point out that science right now is that really our sinuses serve no functional purpose other than ruining our lives? <laughs> if yeah. we have sinus problems? Yeah, I kind of, I got really curious about sinuses. Like, what are these things? Why do we have essentially these empty spaces in our heads? Um, and yeah, as it was explained to me, it's, it's this sort of case of, um, you know, not everything in evolution does a job, right? Some things just happen and then they're not hurting anyone, they kind of stick around. And so we've got these things uh, in our head just clogging up with snot all the time, and there's nothing we can do about it. That's what I think is so cool about this book, though, is because it seems like you got the photos of Manolete years and years ago, but the essay itself takes us to all of these different places. Like, I don't know, I'm assuming you didn't think you were going to be spending this much time in the, I can't say the annals of sinus studies, maybe the sinuses of <laughs> the sinus, sinus studies. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, the, well, the first thing was I got this photo. I mean, I think it was, it was almost 15 years ago now, and I got this photo, and I just had this photo on my phone, and I'd show it to people, and I'd be like, check this out, and everyone would laugh. And it took me years before I even thought, like, well, who is this guy? <laughs> maybe I should figure out who this guy is. And so, yeah, I say the book, I, I finally got this biography of him, and, uh, and it arrives, and I rip it open, I'm sitting on my floor, and uh, the first sentence I read, literally, I open up the book, I crack the spine, and I look, and the first sentence I read, it says, he has a face that's as dreary as a third-class funeral on a rainy day. <laughs> and, uh, and what I realized with that is this, this bullfighter, who's my exact twin, apparently, was just renowned for his ugliness. Like, people just could not stop talking about how ugly he was. Um, even people who really loved him, they would always, always tack on some cheap shot about, you know, call him old big nose or something. Um, so so yeah, then I had to sit with that for a few years. Years. Yeah, um, and you know, then I was like, "Well, how can I write about sinuses?" No, I'm right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you're right. I think like in in many ways, it's like you know, even though I think having done this kind of work for so long, I kind of go through the world like thinking that everything is potentially a story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a story like right then and there. You know, there's a mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff sloshing around that that mm -hmm. kind of has to wait for the right moment. I'm wondering how it feels to you to have the reaction that this piece has had. Lots of people have been talking about it, uh, not the least of them. Jamie Lee Curtis, apparently, is now your new like PR person. What is going on? <laughs> what? what is happening with you and Jamie Lee Curtis? Uh, JLC. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I just I got a really nice uh, note from Jamie Lee Curtis, and... Um, you know, it's fun when uh, she's celebrities, you know? <laughs> but now... <laughs> um, but yeah, so she's been uh, kind of championing uh, the book <laughs> online, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And um, it's... Uh, I don't know what more to say, but thank well, you, Jamie I, Lee Curtis. Yeah. I guess, I guess the nature of my question is, you know, you have written a lot of really incredible essays, but they're often about other people. A guy who decides to build a town that he's calling the center of the universe in Felicity, California, named for his wife. When you write a piece like that and people say, hey, that was a great piece, that feels good. But when you write a piece that's literally about the inside of who you are and they say, this really moved me, that must be an intense experience. Yeah, it's really, it's really special. I mean, I think it's like, I don't really understand how to, how to interact. I mean, it's, it's nice when I get a, an email, like I've gotten some really beautiful emails from people and, and that's always great. And yet I know better than to like kind of go actively seek the feedback to the piece online. Uh -huh. mm. When I finally saw Manolete's picture, I thought he was a quite handsome, kind of got a little Vincent Gallo type yeah. situation going, yeah. which as your twin, by extension, means you are also a handsome person, John Mualem. Yeah, well, thank you. And more importantly, my phone and computer autocorrect many words now to Mualem. Same. What? So Same. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> like, that's, that's the a, mark of success. That's Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> that's the JLC book. Yeah, that is, that's the JLC 100%. difference. Yeah, right there. John yeah. Mualem, everyone. The book is Serious Face.
That was John Mualem right here on Livewire, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater. His latest book, Serious Face, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Christian Asher. Christian is part of the Livewire member community. Doesn't just share my middle name, although that is important. Christian's also, maybe even more importantly, generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we're super thankful for that because it's how we are able to keep doing Livewire week in and week out. So thanks, Christian, for keeping the show going. This is Livewire. As we do each week on the show, we have asked the Livewire listeners a question. This week, in honor of Jenny Wynn, who we're going to talk to about starting her dream business, the sports bra, we asked the listeners, describe your dream business. Elena has been collecting up those responses. What do you? I see you're already laughing. <laughs> what are the people saying? Three words from Mark in terms of Mark's dream business. Hot tub testing. Hot tub testing. <laughs> I mean, let's think this through, Mark. Like, what do you you go to people's houses and get in their hot tubs? Is that what we're talking about? Or are you in like a a quality control like warehouse? Right. And then the other problem is that, sure, if you're in the Goldilocks zone, that's great. If you only get to test hot tubs that are the right temperature. But, you know, they also have to figure out what's too cold and what's too hot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's, a, what's another dream business that one of our listeners would like to start? Oh, this is a pretty good idea from Erica. Erica says, I want to start a business where people upload pictures and stats on their dogs. And then when I feel like having a companion on my nature walk, I will select and borrow their dog for the afternoon. (laughs) That is a great idea. Right? You could be like, oh, I really need like a a long walk, pick a Rhodesian Ridgeback. If you just kind (laughs) of want to take like a small stroll, maybe like a Cavalier King Charles. I don't know. Right. As a dog owner throughout my life, of course, I loved walking my dog, but there are also the days when you just don't have time for it. Maybe you're mm-hmm. not feeling well, you're too busy, and it would be a huge favor if somebody wanted to take your dog, run them through the woods for 10 miles, and bring them back all tired and content. I've told you about the dog bus that used to go around Corvallis and pick up dogs and take them to the woods and exhaust them and then bring them home. And the dogs would jump on the school bus and they all knew their assigned seats. That is adorable. But that's a business. This sounds more like a volunteer organization. Somebody who wants to walk a dog and somebody who has a dog that needs walking. It's like a dating service. Yeah, exactly. It's like Hinge, but for pet owners. All right. One more dream business idea from our listeners. Okay. Here's one from Maggie. Maggie wants to open a soup restaurant with rotating daily soups and a ton of side options. Garlic bread, salads, and fries. It sort of sounds like the soup counter from Seinfeld, mm-hmm. only people are nice and maybe you can sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, I eat a lot of soup, even in the summertime, and I don't think there are enough dedicated soup restaurants. Yeah. If Maggie was able to start this business, I would be the first customer. What do you call it? Soup superstars? Soup. Super bad at coming up with restaurant names. That would be my contribution to it. I always wanted to start a restaurant that would also, you could eat in a recliner. Mm. And then when you were done, you could recline and take a nap. The immediate nap that follows. Yeah. And you just, just like, peace I just out. I like 10, 15 minutes to sleep this off. Then I'm ready to go. No, I will not leave this Denny's. I am napping. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everyone who wrote in with responses to our listener question. We've got an audience question for next week's show, which we're going to reveal at the end of 
today's program, so stick around for that. Speaking of dream businesses, by the way, our next guest had the courage to completely defy her parents' advice during the pandemic when they said, do not open a sports bar in Portland, Oregon in the midst of a pandemic. But this was not just any sports bar. This was the Sports Bra, the world's first sports bar that we know of anyway, that exclusively shows women's sports on the televisions. It's already been a huge success. They raised over $100,000 on Kickstarter to get it going. And they've gotten all kinds of news coverage from all over the world. And in the process, they've been able to draw attention to the gender inequality in terms of which sports are getting televised. Her name is Jenny Wynn, and she joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater. Take a listen to this. Jenny, thank you for making some time in your schedule to to be here. I live not far from the sports bra, and I drive down Broadway every day, and there is a line out the door, and I just think, I think this has been too successful. You might need to shut it down. It's just... (laughs) It seems like a lot of work. I mean, that place is yeah. a hit. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty incredible. I am overwhelmed, really. <laughs> Let's kind of go back to, for the four people in America who haven't heard the story yet, <laughs> of the sports bra. It's an amazing one. So you and um, some, some friends and, and your partner were out watching uh, an NCAA uh, finals game in mm-hmm. the, the women's bracket, and it was a great game. It came down to the wire, but there mm-hmm. was one thing going on, and your experience was that the audio wasn't on in the bar because this was women's sports. Right, that's correct. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a really common experience for anyone who's a women's sports fan that goes out to go try to watch it on TV. And it's like, okay, you go to this space, and there's a million TVs on. None of them have your game on. Uh, so it was the same in this particular case. And when you think about uh, the NCAA finals, like to me, I mean, basketball's my jam. Yes. So it's like the biggest game of the year. And so we roll in and there's like a dozen of us and uh, the game's not on. Something else is on the main screen. And so we just asked to have the, one of the TVs changed and they kind of put us over into the side and it's like a small TV in the corner and we, you know, are, are kind of used to that. So we watch the game, we have a great time um, and it ends up being like, one of the best games ever. And uh, afterwards, you know, we were just out in the parking lot milling around talking about how great a game it was. And then somebody was just like, yeah, it would have been better if the sound had been on. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, and it was at that moment where it just clicked where I was like, I didn't even notice. So had I gotten so used to, you know, watching women's sports in like a compromised way. Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's what stood out to me. So then yeah. um, you and your friends started referring to this mythical sports bar that you were going to start someday that was like where none of the lame sort of like, you know, sexist, gendered norms of the regular sports bar existed, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't so blatant as that. It was, it was more of a place for us to just go and hang out and watch games and feel comfortable, you know, like yeah. for my friends and I. And it was never going to be a place that... I, I was planning on opening up. It was just like this fictional place that was just like, oh, you know, like this game would be on at the sports bra or (laughs) at the sports bra, we'd have a vegan version of this, you know, like just random stuff. Yeah. It was like, it was this like idealized version where everything was great. Yeah. The toilet paper would never run out. (laughs) And it sounds like you named it early. It was the sports bra, even when it was still just a figment of your imagination. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that like, maybe a day or two days after that 2018 game, you know, it was just like the little seed was living in my head and I was like, mm, if 
there was a place, you know, what would it be called and what would be cool? And, uh, you know, the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that it's just a sports bar and all you're doing is you're changing the channel, which is real simple, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you just take like sports bar and you just change the, mm -hmm. change the letters mm -hmm. and sports, sports bra. bra. Yeah. Right? You do have that trademarked, right? I do, yeah. Okay, good, because that is a billion-dollar idea. <laughs> the other thing, too, actually, Jenny, that I've, I've heard you say before is the sports bra is not a, quote-unquote, women's sports bar. It's a sports bar that happens to show women's sports on the television. Why is that an important distinction to you? Oh, man, it's, I mean, I get it all the time. Are men allowed in there? And it's just like, uh, yeah, it's not a sports bar for women, yeah. you know? It's a bar for women's sports. And so, like, statistically a majority of women sports fans are men. So I, I, the thing is, if you like sports, you don't care who's playing it. You just like sports. Yeah. Um, but what happens is that, you know, 96% of all sports that are on TV are men's sports. So that's what people identify with. And that's what they are cheering for most of the time. But I mean, something that I didn't realize until I started looking into the story was that there are lots and lots and lots of, uh, of women's sports happening all the time. The issue is they're not being televised mm -hmm. or they're streaming somewhere. So it seems like a big part of your work, along with creating the menu and the <laughs> cocktail list and all the normal things about running a, a bar restaurant, sure. in addition to that, you've become this sort of like content merchant <laughs> who's trying to actually get the stuff to put on those TVs, right? What has that been like? Absolutely. I really, like, if there's anybody out there that is into that, uh, I really think that is somebody else's full-time job, is to find <laughs> women's content so that we can play it at the bra. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's really intense, you know, because one interesting thing is that there are, you know, dozens and dozens of streaming services, and they know that there are people out there who are interested in these women's sports, and they want to access it. And so they're willing to pay, you know, $4.99 a month or whatever it is. But there's, there's so many. So even you have something as huge as the WNBA. And it's playing on seven different channels. I mean, that's a huge league. And then you're talking about things like bowling or surfing or any of these smaller, like lesser known sports or whatever. Mm -hmm. How are you going to watch those? So is it that they're not even being uh, filmed right now and you're trying to get people to get out to do that or it's they're being filmed but you don't have the rights as a bar owner to show the stream like what are the mm -hmm. impediments the second thing okay so with streaming services they pay very little money to get that content and that's why you know it's 4.99 for me to watch it at home mm -hmm. but there's no way for a business to show it in commercial because that those rights cost a lot more but what has happened is people who have heard or the streaming services who have heard have reached out and they're like, you know, we can see the benefit in giving you access to this stuff because it's, it helps us to promote ourselves and to promote these leagues and these sports and you're drawing attention to that. And right. so you're helping to grow it. And so it's like a, you know, scratch your back, scratch my back kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what we need, I think, to get yeah. it started. Yeah. We are talking to Jenny Wynn, the owner and founder of the Sports Bra here in Portland, which is a sports bar that exclusively shows uh, women's sports on the televisions. Now, when you and I talked, uh, I don't know, a month ago or so when you were opening the place, um, you said that during the times of, of day when maybe there wasn't any content involving women's sports, you were considering leaving the TVs off as a way of pointing out 
this kind of lack of coverage. Where, where have you landed on that now that you've been open a month? What mm-hmm. are you doing? Yeah, I mean, part of it is kind of tempering expectations. Hmm. A lot of people expect, you know, they walk into a sports bar and TVs are blaring 24-7, and that's the expectation. And so, like, I, what I wanted to do was just to make sure that people know that here we are, we're a space that is dedicated to showing women's sports, right? Um, but there isn't any possible way that we're able to show 24-7 content. You know, there's not, um, like, running commentary. There's not tons of replays. There's not, like, oh, the 1976 Arnold Palmer, right, you know, right. uh, classic For special or sports, whatever. For men's sports, there's just so much of it has been televised. It's a mind-numbing amount of content exactly. that you could always put in a VHS tape of Dorf on golf. Or somebody's always talking about I don't know that, why that's where my brain went. That's wow. Tim Conway yeah. doing a sketch that's not even real sports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with men's sports, there's always, like, commentary. You know, I wanted to temper expectations. I didn't want guests to come in and expect what they're used to for a regular sports bar to be what we have access to. Um, and then another thing is, like, you know, 90, 95% of all sports bars are probably streaming things that they shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we can do that, but one, we're one entity that maybe a lot of people are watching. And right. two, super visible. Super yeah. visible. And two, like, why would I want to do that when the point is to kind of drive home the idea that we need more representation, we right. need more access, we need more of If you're stealing the broadcast of right. a women's sport, that's not yeah, helping the overall cause. And then, and then people cause. would come in and be like, oh, there's plenty of women's sports on right. TV. Right. You know, so. This has been such a success and also just something that the community has really rallied around. Mm-hmm. Has that sunk into you? Or are you just thinking about intellectually but not able to fully <laughs> wrap your mind around it, I guess? Uh, you know, I think it comes in waves. Um, there are moments, and it's like these the small moments that sneak in when you least expect it. You know, whether it's like 10.30 and things are starting to die down and I'm having my shift drink. <laughs> and, uh, and I like sit back and I watch the bartenders do what they do. I watch my servers do what they do. And everybody is moving in the pieces that they should be. There's people sitting at the bar watching a game. And those quiet moments where I'm able to sit back and be like, you know, this is a space that I've always wanted. This is the space that I've always wanted to be in. And now that we're here, like, I can kind of create that for other people. And, and, and it sinks in in these little moments. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's messages and letters that I get daily that are um, very impactful and it, it's a great way to slow down and remind me of why I started to do this. The real question is, has this completely killed your ability to play rec basketball? 100%. Which, <laughs> which ironically, was a huge part of your life before this. Absolutely. And now you created this yeah. thing that makes it so you can't play basketball with your friends anymore. 100%. <laughs> so I, I signed up for a rec league like mm, right before I knew I was going to open. I was just like, okay, I'm going to commit to one hour a week. Like it'll be good for me to get physically out there and like sweat it out while all of this other stuff is happening. And immediately as soon as the doors open, I was just like, you guys got to find another point guard. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're glad your talents are being used over at the sports bra. Jenny Wynn, founder of the sports bra right here in Portland, Oregon. That was Jenny Wynn recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater. If you're in the Portland area, make sure you check out the sports bra and tell Jenny hi from Livewire. 
I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we are going to talk to Laura Veers about what it was like producing her own music after divorcing her husband, who was also her producer. Then we're going to get to hear some of that music. So stick around. This is Livewire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, before we hear from our musical guest, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to essayist and New York Times bestselling author Adam Gopnik about his latest book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. It explores the fundamental question of how do we learn and master a new skill, but in classic Adam Gopnik style. Uh, it does it in a way that just illuminates the wider world somehow. Booklist calls it joyous and insightful. We're also going to hear how Adam ended up, I would say, basically dominating the first 15 minutes of the Oscar-nominated <laughs> film Tar. Yes. Was, I really think of it as an Adam Gopnik film at this point. We're also going to hear some comedy from the very funny Abby Govindin, who attempted to scam the KKK for a school project... And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know, what are you the master of? So what skill do you have in spades? Right. Or just a thing that you are the most of. Mm. <laughs> it may not be, it could be mastery or it could just be, you know. Extraness. Right? That would be, <laughs> although I think I may have that title. I'm not sure. Anyway, if you've got a response to our question, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We're at LiveWire Radio pretty much everywhere out there on social media. All right, our musical guest this week is a singer-songwriter known for her inquisitive and literary lyrics. She's released a dozen albums, many of them via her own label, Raving Marching Band Records. She's also collaborated with a whole range of artists, including Sufjan Stevens, Nico Case, and also Katie Lang as part of the supergroup Case Lang Veers. Her new album is Found Light. Laura Veers joined us on stage at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon. Let's take a listen to that. Hi, Luke. Laura, it's so nice to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. How have you been? I've been all right. How yeah. have you been? We've been all right. <laughs> I was uh, reading a quote from you about this latest album. I mean, you have made a lot of records in your day, and you said that this uh, album, in many ways, kind of feels like your debut album. Why so? This is the first one that I have produced myself, and I produced it with a friend named Shazad Ismaili from New York. And um, my ex-husband was my producer for 20 years, and so when we broke up, I had to rediscover myself as a musician independently, and it took a little bit of searching, but I'm happy with what I found. Wow. So that's a whole new way of making your music. Yeah. Did you, uh, you know, I don't want to get you to talk about anything that you don't feel particularly comfortable with, but did you find as 
your own producer or co-producer that you made different decisions and that you liked some of the decisions better because now you were sort of driving that bus? Yeah, in certain ways. I mean, Tucker, my ex, is a great record producer and we made a lot of music that I'm proud of. But um, being in my own producer driver's seat, I made some decisions that I felt happy with, like only doing a couple takes and not really doing a lot of edits, just going with the raw feeling of the music and also limiting ourselves to just a few instruments per track so that the songs themselves really came to life in a way that I felt was fresh and new for me. So yeah, it was a really um, difficult experience in terms of figuring out how to parse out myself, you know, from my ex and that long relationship, which was really collaborative for so many years. Also, we have kids and houses and studios and all this stuff that we had to disentangle over a long period of time. And then I had, I wanted to be really authentic in the way that I told the story of how difficult this is, because especially when you have kids, a divorce is very painful. Mm. But also the reason people do it is because it's leading you to something better. So I did want to try in my most authentic way as a writer, a songwriter, to express the depth of that situation. Well, it's, it would appear that the, that the music is, is really finding uh, an audience. The New York Times' What to Cook This Week newsletter instructed uh, its readers to listen to your new single while they're cooking this weekend. Um, this is a real thing. Do you know about this? You know, someone mentioned it backstage. I had heard that it was like recommended on the New York Times playlist, but I didn't realize it was they, a specific they, it, Yeah, it's playlist. what to cook this week. You're supposed to, people are supposed to listen to the new single and according to the New York Times, cook cheese enchiladas. Okay, well, I should try that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fun. Is that the song that we're going to hear? That's not one. That's like okay. a like pretty hard rocker. Okay. But it's called Winter Windows, and it's out on YouTube. I did a video. I like self-made a video in my basement with my iPhone, and was like doing a weird, insane dancing. So hmm. it's on YouTube. You can okay. check it out. This is Laura Veers here on Livewire. <laughs> This is one of the songs off my new album. It's called My Lantern. Diamond eyes burning bright in the sun in the park you are wonderful your poetry arc you give me hope you are my lantern in the dark my lantern my lantern as night stitches My 
Thank you. That was Laura Veers right here on Livewire. Her latest album, Found Light, is out now. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, John Mualem, Jenny Wynn, and Laura Veers. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. Yasmeen Median is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Christian Asher. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.